0: When Sauber signed Kimi Räikkönen to make his F1 debut in 2001, he'd only been out of karts for a year and had 23 car races and a Formula Renault UK title under his belt. It was a controversial signing and one that the FIA president tried and failed to block. On this episode of Bring Back V10s, we'll tell the inside story of Räikkönen's arrival to F1 with the help of someone who was there to witness it all from first-hand inside Sauber. But before we get to that, remember to get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005 simply by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by leaving us a five-star podcast review if you feel so inclined. Before we get to our guests today, we'll do a quick shout-out to some of our latest reviewers. So thank you very much to 202 to Heathrow, AB Fitness 81, Richmond Tom, and Twitch 1089. We really appreciate all the reviews that are flying in at the moment, and I'll do my best over the remaining episodes of this series to catch up with the rest of them. But now let's get on to today's subject, and we'll start with our special guest, who should have an inside story or two for us from Raikkonen's first year in F1. So it's a very special welcome to the show to Raikkonen's engineer from that season, Jackie Eckelart. Jackie, thanks for coming along. You're Welcome. Now, we always start these shows with the same first question, so I'll throw it to you first, which is quite simply, when you think back to Raikkonen's arrival in Formula 1, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
1: Well, of course, um, maybe I first can tell you how we came up with the idea of uh, Kimi. I mean, it was actually in the year 2000. Uh, Sauber had uh, two drivers, Mika Salo and Pedro Diniz. I think Pedro decided to, to quit F1 and Mike was offered a, a drive by a Toyota who entered F1. And, uh, okay, let's say the offer of Toyota was a bit uh, too much to make a counter offer from the cyber side. It was three times more than we paid him. So we were looking for another driver. Then my first idea was uh, Jensen Button because uh, Jensen I followed from karting days already. I knew he was a bit special and I knew. He was doing his first year uh, in 2000 with uh, Williams, but I also knew that Frank has signed a contract to get Montoya in 2001 in F1. So Jensen was free for 2001, so that was my first idea. And so, uh, I told this to Peter. We contacted the Robertsons, uh, father and son, who were managing Jensen, and uh, they said, Yeah, sorry, you're too late. We just signed a, a contract with Flavio Briatore to get uh, Jensen at Reno. So then. The Robertsons came up with Kimi Raikkonen and said, ah, Kimi. He said, do you know him? He said, well, I know him because I'm always informing myself in the, with the professions of the casting, you know, to, to know who is better than the average. And uh, yeah, I said, uh, let's try Kimi. So yeah, but Kimi, I mean, I mean, what is his experience? He has done six or seven races of Formula Renault. It was about mid-season, 2000. Uh, yeah, but okay. Fine. At the end, we decided with Peter to give him a test in, in Mugello in uh, the year 2000 and the first day he was tested testing a formula one car i think 12 months before he was still a car driver you know, so it was really a, a big jump and a very quick move but uh i was impressed from from day one let's say absolutely yeah,
0: yeah it's really interesting and we'll come to it shortly The the impact of that Magello test but also how Sauber maybe kept some of it quiet but also joining us is Mark Hughes, a man who's covered Raikkonen's entire F1 career, which remarkably is still going on today. So Mark, when you think back to Kimi in 2001, what's the first thing that stands out for you?
2: I remember watching him in practice at Imola, which was round four. And it wasn't just how instant his adaptation to Formula One was, it was how spectacular it was because he wasn't just not overawed by the car, he was on top of it and hustling it very aggressively. He was in those days, he was all curbs and catch, unlike the, the smoother Kimmy of later years. Um, but he made virtually no errors. He just didn't look like a rookie. And I remember standing in a cold practice session at Aquaman O'Reilly, uh, and his confidence and car control were just extraordinary. And he was visually the most exciting guy of all to watch and um, at, at that time. And um, on race day, before his steering wheel came adrift and caused him to crash, he'd been Snapping at the heels of Barrichello's Ferrari, a much faster car. And I thought I thought back to that seventeen years later in Baku as another young sauber rookie Charles Leclerc was hassling the Ferrari ahead of him, driven by Raikkonen. So it was a nice circle of time. Yeah, and I think we'd
0: agree that Charles Leclerc's probably got quite a good F one career ahead of him. So we will start Raikkonen's journey into F one at the two thousand Hungarian Grand Prix. Because that's where one of his managers, Dave Robertson, worked his magic on Peter Sauber to convince him to get this F1 test that Jackie mentioned earlier. Sauber has said in the years since that he's not sure why he agreed to give a test to someone who was less than a year out of karting. But in a feature on the official F1 website written by a former colleague of mine, Lawrence and titled The Inside Story of Kimi Räikkönen's Legendary First F1 Test, Sauber said Robertson must have infected me with his enthusiasm. He added, I'm still surprised that I agreed to this test because a three-day test is very expensive. In that same feature, Steve Robertson, Dave's son, said that a big part of the pitch was that uh if Sauber didn't take Kimmy, the Robertsons would find him a seat elsewhere. And that that did work on Sauber. Basically, the threat, I think, in their words, was he will get swallowed up by a big team. So, Jackie, you mentioned there how Raikkonen came on to your radar before he drove the car though did you did you have any reservations about a guy going straight from formula renault into an f1 car with sauber uh,
1: actually not too much because as i said to you before i'm always trying to get to know the drivers uh through the casting professionals because they learn to know the drivers when they're still very young eh? 12 14 15 years old 16 years old There is no manager, there is no lawyer, there is nothing like that, you know, around. (laughs) So, And they know a kid is much more transparent than an adult. And they know uh, not only if they're fast, everybody knows it because you see the the lap times, but they also know the character. When something goes wrong, does he give up or does he go on, you know? They know how strong their character is, their, their will to win, you know? which is very important, of course. And from Kimi and you also through these uh, karting professions he was something quite special, a bit like uh, also Jensen was quite special and, and others like Ubicaf, how the names they gave to me. And uh, so basically, I think if you used to to race in very high level karting, yeah, like the Formula A in those days was the top level of karting and you're very good, I mean, you got the potential to drive an F1 car. And the only thing you have to work for sure is is the the physical condition because uh, a karting race is 20 minutes and a fun race is is one and a half hour and it's not uh, one and a half or two Gs, it's like four to five Gs. So for sure, that's something you have to work on. But the potential is there and the character is there to to succeed. So actually, I was quite convinced.
0: What about you, Mark? How was your your knowledge of the early 2000s karting scene? When When you heard before the test that Sauber was giving this guy a run. Did it Did it register much in the paddock and, and around the media centres around the world, do you think? Or or was it just an unheard of name, really, getting a chance? To be honest, it didn't register that
2: strongly, really. I don't think it was generally realised what an extensive exhaustive test this was going to be. We we knew the Robertsons were very savvy operators and they'd just brought Jensen into F1 the year before. And we assumed Dave had just done one of his sales pitches on Peter. It wasn't unusual for small teams to be trying out new drivers at at the time when there weren't restrictions on test days so it's not as big a formal deal as it would be now or actually as this one turned out to be it it put Raikkonen's name on the F1 radar but it seemed a couple of years away at least before he'd be a legitimate F1 prospect even even to those of us who had at least heard of him and were aware of what he was doing John Booth's team in Formula Renault.
0: Yeah, and the test took place in the middle of September 2000 at Mugello, as we mentioned. Raikkonen did 28 laps on the first day, four seconds off the pace set by Olivier Panis for McLaren, and perhaps more relevantly, 2.4 seconds slower than Sauber's current driver, Deniz. Deniz was only there for the first day, so Raikkonen was left with only Panis and Michael Schumacher for company on track for the next two days. And on the second day, he went half a second quicker than Deniz had managed, and just over two seconds down on Panis. On the third day, he was three seconds slower than the McLaren. Now, in the F1 article that we mentioned earlier, Sauber technical director Willie Ramps mentioned that as well as not crashing the car, one of the key moments that impressed the team was when they took the fuel out for a qualifying run. They didn't tell Raikkonen what his target lap time should be, but they knew the lighter fuel load should be worth 1.2 seconds. And that's how much faster he went on that run. Jackie, not only were you Kimi's engineer in 2001, but you ran the car at this test. How impressed were you with what you saw? And is it true that Michael Schumacher came along for a chat after he'd seen Raikkonen on track?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's true. <laughs> well, let's say the first day, uh, because I knew his, uh, his neck was not up to uh, driving F1 car, especially in Mugello, because Mugello, you know, with uh, high speed codes, especially the double right-handler and Abieta. Is running off your head, yeah. I mean, uh, so I told him the first day, we'll do only a uh, limited number of runs with from maximum three time laps, just to give your neck the possibility to catch up again. And in the, in the meantime, we'll uh, check the data and so on. And uh, because also you have to learn all that, of course, because, I mean, he has driven casting, which is completely different in terms of setup of an F1 car. Danny has driven this uh, bit of Formula 4 in the wind and Formula Renault. But of course, in terms of setup, I mean, it has nothing to do with an F1 car. And what impressed me at the beginning, because he was a rookie, I told him first, get used to the power of the car, accelerating in the straight line without wheel spinning too much. Uh, Get used to the brakes because brakes in Formula 1 is massive because the drag of the car, the carbon brakes in the downforce. And then we concentrate uh, on the corners more and more and more. And uh, so I set up the car quite understeering because it's, of course, more safe. It's not the quickest way, but it's much more safe than a, a more, uh, let's say, balanced car. And uh, already after uh, the second outing, he said to me, he asked me, can you not get a bit of less understeering in the car because I don't like this too much. It makes me slower. <laughs> So and the way he he progressed during the day, you know, there was for him no hurry. He had nothing to prove uh, immediately. He only wants to learn, you know. He's like uh, he wants to take up everything. He could even during the, the the runs on the first day because sometimes between one and the second run we waited like three quarters of an hour to after giving a massage. Uh, on his neck and so on and then um, he wanted to uh climb up the hill and, and going to watch michael schumacher taking the corners in his said ah, you know at the side of the track <laughs> and uh as a matter of fact in the evening and we're still uh, uh after the debriefing we were still preparing the run plan for the second day uh somebody knocked at the door of the motorhome you know and uh, i opened the door it was michael and he said to me who is this guy you're running today and, uh, and i said, 12 months ago he was still karting and so on and uh, I saw in his eyes he, what do you want to tell me and he told me he will go very 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 fast easy quick guys so I was convinced <laughs>
0: <laughs> well he was definitely right uh, so yeah Mike, Michael's eye for talent certainly wasn't off that day what I found fascinating going back and looking over the coverage of this test at the time was how low key everything was afterwards. Uh, All we got from Peter Sauber was that Raikkonen adapted blindingly quickly to an F1 car. And other than that, he just said, we will have to consider very carefully whether we will work with him or not. But even at that point, he was being speculated that it would be for a test driver role. And Raikkonen said he expected to race in F3 in 2001. But he did say, if I had the chance to do something in F1, then I would do it straight away, because you can learn a lot. So Mark, as we mentioned earlier, We know now how pivotal Kimi's performance was at this test. But thinking back to at the time, did many whispers get out about that he'd done something this special? No. Uh, We
2: later later heard about um, that Michael Schumacher had been very intrigued to see how hard the car was being pushed and wanted to know who was in it, uh, Jackie's story. Um, So that kind of pricked up our ears a bit. But there were no times available. It was all done a private test a long way from the other teams. It was all within the Ferrari family sort of thing. But with the Robertsons, you never knew. Dave would be telling us that this kid was fantastic and that he was even better than Jensen. We could see from Formula Renault he he did look good. But it might all have been just Dave hyping up his clients. So there's no obvious certainty about any of it. He'd, He'd done the test. He'd done a good job. He'd interested Michael Schumacher. So he's now definitely on the radar. But
0: it was no more than that. And, Jackie, was it deliberate from Sauber to downplay the test and not talk about it too much in public? No, maybe, yes, because I think at the beginning, Peter... Could not imagine signing a Formula One
1: race driver that uh, 12 months before was still a karting driver. You know, it was a bit very unusual. And I must admit it, it. It was, but I was convinced. You know, so uh, instead of <laughs> trying to sign him up as a test driver, I want to sign him up as a race driver. And uh, we had a lot of discussions about that. And at the end, uh, Peter had the balls to do this because he's you, know, you need balls to do that for sure. I mean. But I think also the the Robertsons, they eh? for sure is a very good salesman. Steve also, but Steve, he had been quite a decent Formula One Formula Three driver, I think, in the UK, and uh, he had a good eye for for fast drivers. You know, a very good eye to find the good drivers. That's for sure. He was just not marketing talking. He was also the truth behind it. You know, but the proof it is that both of of those drivers, Jensen and and, and Kimi, uh, became world champions. So
0: yeah, they did okay. there was another test a couple of weeks later back at Mugello and this time Raikkonen was joined in the Sauber by Enrique Binaldi who was the team's official test driver and backed by its main sponsor and team shareholder Red Bull Raikkonen was quicker than Binaldi by half a tenth although Binaldi said he set his best time when the track was a lot hotter and therefore slower than it was for Raikkonen Jackie this from a distance, this looks a lot like a shootout between Red Bull's preferred driver and Sauber's choice. Was that the case?
1: Actually, it was the case, yeah, because after Kimi's first test, uh, Peter uh, spoke to uh, Dietrich Mataschitz about Kimi, you know, and because uh, Dietrich knew he needed a new driver to replace Mika Salo. and because Diniz was already replaced by Nick Heidfeld, he was signed already. Um, he knew that uh, Enrique Bernoldi, who had done, I think, already two seasons of Formula 3000 with the team of uh, Dr. Marco, fully sponsored by Red Bull. logical choice would be that he would go to a farm with a Sauber team, which was sponsored and co-owned by by Red Bull. So uh, that's why we had to do uh, this compare, because I was pushing for Kimi, and uh, Matasit was pushing for, and especially Marco was pushing for Bernoldi. And, uh, so we had to give them a common test. And based on the results of that test, we would decide which of them would uh, take the Formula One drive. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, Bernoldi was also very, very fast. So no, no problem with, with his speed at all. But, uh, apart from giving them, let's say, uh, shiny tires and, uh, and low fuel to, to test their pure speed on one lap, I also, uh, let them do long runs. Uh, of 20 laps uh, with the uh, right amount of fuel to see their consistency over the long run. You know? And there the, the picture was very clear. I mean, but When the tyres
0: getting old and the car gets difficult to drive, there uh, was no match for Kimi those days. And that's amazing, considering Raikkonen's lack of experience. And it was a month after this test, so by the end of October, that the talk of Raikkonen possibly getting an F1 test deal had turned into a likely race deal for 2001. Nothing was signed at this point, but Peter Sauber was clearly quite confident because he said, there are several aspects why we very strongly believe that Raikkonen is the right man for us. First of all, his very professional approach towards his work and his astonishing maturity considering his age. Even more impressive is his natural speed. He seems to crank out fast lap times effortlessly. In comparison with other drivers, we never got the impression that he reached his limits. We still have to find out how fast he can go. Raikkonen said it was a great opportunity. And he even said, uh, I found driving the F1 car was quite easy, much easier than getting back into a Formula Renault afterwards. At the time, Steve Robertson said, we've been told it's an internal decision and they'll tell us when it's been made. We know there are people within the team pulling for Kimi. And I think we've got one of those people on the chat with us today. But before we bring Jackie back in, Mark, when you first started to get word that actually Sauber were looking at giving this guy a race seat for 2001, were you surprised or by this point, did you know how well he'd done in the tests? It was still a surprise,
2: um, it, yeah, the, the word had started le- leaking out a bit more about the, how, how impressive the tests were, but it, it was still a surprise, it was unprecedented so for someone's second season of car racing to be in F1, there'd been rapid ascents before, but none this rapid. So, but. Talking to John Booth about it later, he ran ran him in Formula Renault, he made the point that the 21-year-old Raikkonen he got in his Formula Renault team was already largely fully formed. And he reckoned it was because he'd stayed in carts until he was 20, which was even then was pretty late, simply because he'd not had the budget to move out of it. So he was able to keep developing himself in that crucial age between, say, 16 and your early 20s, when 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 everyone makes so much progress, you know, personal progress. By contrast, a couple of years later, John got a 17-year-old Lewis Hamilton for his Formula Renault team, who, while just as talented, was not at that stage anything like as the fully formed item. He still had a load of developing development to do, so, but not Kimi. So. Kimmy dominated that Formula Renault season. He was virtually unbeaten that year. Formula Renault car was already like child's play to him. He was at its limits within a few minutes of getting into it and fully in control of his environment. It was similar in a way to what we'd seen with Ayrton Senna when he arrived in Britain to do Formula Ford in 81. He'd already done his development and evolution in Brazilian karting where he'd spent many years away from the spotlight, just getting better and better. So what we saw turning up in the UK was the fully formed fully polished final product, and he looked instantly sensational. Whereas you're watching the British guys develop in front of you, so it didn't look quite so impressive. So, yeah, I think we saw a similar thing with with Kimi. He was already very fully formed when he arrived in car racing.
0: And as November dragged on, Sauber made it clear it wanted Raikkonen as a race driver for 2001, but then rumours started to emerge from the FIA that the governing body wasn't keen on giving Räikkönen a super license. Räikkönen was named as a Sauber driver on the official F1 entry list at the start of December, but his fate would be decided at a meeting of the F1 Commission on December the 7th, at the end of a week where Räikkönen would effectively be supervised in testing at Haref. Räikkönen was pretty dismissive of the speculation about if he was ready to race in F1. Before that test, he said, everybody should be given an equal opportunity. I'm not sure how they can judge who can have a super license, I only hope to be given a chance. I may have only done 23 car races, but I don't believe the number is a key issue. I don't think Sauber would want a driver who's not ready for F1. I could do a season in something else, but I cannot see that changing my way of driving. So Jackie, ahead of that Haref test, was there much concern at Sauber about the fact that Kimi was being supervised, or was everyone pretty relaxed and confident that Kimi would pass whatever this test was supposed to be?
1: Well, based on the, what we saw in doing in the two Michello tests, we were pretty convinced that there would be no problem at all. For sure, the FIA at the end gave him a license only for the first four races. You know, so he was a uh, he was a bit on probation, let's say. <laughs> but uh, no, we were quite confident because, uh, as you said, he's a very quick learner. He was already much more mature than than he should have been, let's say, uh, in in a front. Uh, if you see his uh, small number of laps, his, his short experience, but he was very mature and he made no mistakes. And that was the main thing also for the FIA to not send out a driver uh, in Formula One who could be a danger for the others. You know? But there was no problem with that. We are pretty convinced it was OK.
0: And unsurprisingly, Raikkonen performed just fine in that test. He was always in the top half of the times in a field of 16 or 17 drivers from day to day. And never too far away from Sauber's other new driver, Nick Heidfeld, in the order. Sure enough, the F1 commission then voted in favour by 24 votes to one to give Raikkonen a super licence. And we'll come back to that one vote against in a moment. Peter Sauber said Kimi was able to demonstrate to the satisfaction of the FIA the qualities that attracted us in the first place. It was clear from the outset that the step into Formula One was not too big for him. That put Raikkonen on a Sauber deal worth $500,000 plus another $50,000 per point. Raikkonen's reaction was this. He said, this is the right decision because there were no rules that said you cannot come into Formula One after only racing below Formula Three. I don't want to have a big crash or do anything stupid. Of course, I'm still going to be nervous on the grid in Melbourne, but now I'll be doing everything I can in 2001 to justify the faith that Sauber and the governing body have placed in me. Mark, at this point, we've obviously seen Raikkonen have to perform somewhat in the spotlight at this Heref test. All the other teams were there. We know the focus was on him. Given how that test went, even to an outsider, did it seem straightforward that he would get his license approved after that?
2: Yeah, it did. He he proved to be on the pace. He wasn't having accidents. It would have been faintly ridiculous and kind of frustrating if he'd not been allowed to take up the offer of the drive. So... It ended up being a sort of provisional granting, didn't it? And that was a pretty good compromise because there wasn't much doubt that he'd he'd prove worthy of his place in F1 during that provisional period.
0: Now, I did say I would mention the the one vote against Raikkonen. That was cast by none other than FIA President Max Mosley. Mosley explained his position, saying, uh, unfortunately, the F1 commission doesn't always do as I tell them, despite speculation to the contrary. I do not believe that they adopted a defensible position in giving an inexperienced driver like Raikkonen a license. It's quite wrong that we have strict criteria for graduation into F1. When there is a major accident caused by the presence of a very inexperienced driver, I'm the one who will have to explain it to the world's media. Jackie, can you understand why Max took that position? Well, a little bit, yes. I think he wants to... uh... Cover
1: his ass, let's say. No, a little bit.
0: <laughs>
1: because for sure, I mean, he he did not knew exactly what we knew about Kimi. And there is always a risk. Even if he's doing did a very good job, you know, he could be involved in whatever accident. And uh, if you have bad luck, or he's coming off and killing a marshal or whatever, and it would be him, his car. For sure, uh, people will point the finger at, at the president of the FIA, which was Max. So... I understand a little bit his concern, and uh he knew also after the meeting that he was the only one probably who said no, so there was no no influence, and he covered himself a little bit. I think. Yeah.
0: What did you think, Mark? You, you mentioned that the the compromise that we came to seemed to be pretty fair in the end. Do you think Max was, as as Jackie said, there was Max just sort of covering his own position by knowing that the vote was going to go against him anyway? Yeah, I
2: think so. I think the legal
0: book would have stopped with him if Kimi had proven a liability and caused any
2: injurious accidents, let's say, because it was granted against the FIA's own regulations. But I think it was now becoming evident, and Kimi turned out to be the proof of this, that in terms of driving difficulty, F1 wasn't as big a jump from the junior categories as it had been. The cars were a lot more sanitary, let's say, than earlier F1 cars, that you didn't have to go through the taming of the monster first and have your expensive accidents before you could start to exploit the car. Um, Jensen Button had come in and done an immaculate season the year before, straight from one season of F3, um, though he'd done Formula Ford before that. But it was becoming evident that the really gifted guys from the junior categories could jump straight in, as Jackie said, and begin to fully stretch an F1 car very quickly. And so in that sense, maybe the regulation requirement hadn't fully caught up yet. Um, you watch in-car footage from the, from the 80s and in-car SNSA, and you can see that those cars were monsters, very physical, animalistic almost, to and kick kickback, the lack of sophistication in the behavior. But by the time of the early 2000s, the cars were becoming much more refined and the control systems were better. They had more instrumentation and sensors so the engineers could finesse them better. It was easier to exploit their assets without having first to get accustomed to their vices and having accidents doing so, which is how it used to be. Rookie's always had accidents, it was accepted, but it was um, no longer the case. But you could see Max's point, yeah. It's, and also it set a a precedent for the less gifted or able drivers who might have had the required backing, but not have been up to it, might have been able to use that loophole in future to shortcut their way to F1. But Kimi was there totally on merit. He already looked outstanding.
0: Regardless of Raikkonen's readiness for F1, and as we would see in 2001, there really wasn't any reason to worry, the decision sparked all kinds of reaction from drivers already on the grid. Ralph Schumacher said he had nothing against Raikkonen, but he believed drivers should have to do at least one year of F3 and maybe a season of F3000 before stepping up, because in Ralph's words, those are the schools for F1 and that's where you learn your job. Button said that Raikkonen was clearly quick enough but needed more experience of racing. Jensen said F3 is one of the best training grounds there is, and he felt that Raikkonen hadn't had the competition in Formula Renault because he'd had the best car and not really had to race anyone. He also warned Kimi that based on his own experience, he would find that when you get to Australia for the first race, the race drivers step up another gear compared to what they do in testing. Ferrari's Rubens Barrichello added that the FAA should ask the existing drivers before handing out a license. And he said, I'm sure Raikkonen will make mistakes this year. I made mine in F3 and F3000. Raikkonen is a talented driver, but I'm sure he has not learned everything about driving a racing car in just 23 races. To counter all of that, Steve Robertson said, I believe that Kimi is a special case and he is ready for F1 right now, but that doesn't make F3 or F3000 any less relevant for the majority of drivers. Jackie, presumably based on what you'd seen already by this point, I imagine you didn't share any of those concerns that these guys were raising.
1: Absolutely not. No, for me, uh, I mean, we've seen in the past not similar things to Kimi, but uh, let's say, okay, uh, Alain Prost, he went straight from Formula 3 to Formula 1. Nelson Pickett went straight from Formula 3 to Formula 1. Ayrton Senna went straight from Formula 3 to Formula 1. Okay, so I mean, it's it's possible, I think, for the very high-talented drivers to go straight to Formula 1. And as you mentioned also before, I mean, staying a few years longer in karting, I mean, racing is something you learn in karting, for sure. Uh, and high-level karting for me is a high level of higher level of driving and racing than is Formula 4, for instance, because now all the kids, uh, when they're 14 years old, they want to go to Formula 4 and and, and, and racing uh, cars instead of karts. I'm not too sure if it's a good move to do, honestly. I think uh, a high-level karting uh, championship, the level of driving is extremely high, extremely high, and uh, the driving is very close, so... If you do this a few years more, I think you're at least much better prepared to drive in cars than going too quick to, to a 4, I think. That's my opinion. Eh? Of course, Formula <laughs> 4 team owners will not agree with that. but <laughs> I mean, just a, a personal opinion.
0: Yeah. The, uh, the debate around Raikkonen continued into January 2001. Kimmy said that while he'd only done 23 car races, as Jackie said, there he had been racing in carts for 13 years, so he felt he knew what he was doing. Michael Schumacher went public around this time with his opinion, saying that from what he observed at Mugello, he could see Räikkönen had the potential to be a champion. Steve Robertson also pointed out that no one really minded when Jano Trulli stepped up to F3 uh, from F3 to F1 in 1997, and he said he felt that was a similar step up in power to Formula Renault, to F1 in 2001. Truly backed that up, saying he was probably less prepared than Button and Raikkonen. And he added, nobody in Formula One has the right to stand in their way. Mark, looking at the the talk about the junior ladder, was there any validity to the concerns that this could damage those well-known steps of things like F3 and, and F3000? Or was this just an earlier episode of what we went through in 2014 when we learned Max Verstappen was getting an F1 drive after one year of car racing.
2: Yeah, exactly. It, it, there was no threat to the junior categories. It wasn't it wasn't as if the whole F3 field was suddenly going to be an F1. It was only going to be the the drop-jaw drop, door, drop jaw exceptions who looked irresistible. Um, there was still going to be healthy demand for the lower categories as F1 would,
0: wouldn't have been looking to give them all drives. So no, I, I don't think that was a valid uh, concern. Sauber launched its car and confirmed Jackie as Raikkonen's engineer at the end of January. Peter Sauber was asked about the new lineup of Heidfeld and Raikkonen with just one year of F1 experience between them. Peter said Raikkonen was impossible to overlook for the second seat, adding, We know that it will take Kimi time to find his feet in F1 once the racing starts, but our expectations of his long-term potential are very high. We are taking a risk, but it is a controlled risk. When I see how cool Kimi is approaching Formula One racing, I do not think there is a danger. He also explained that Sauber was betting on youth because he felt the established names were out of reach. He said, to move forward, we need drivers of the calibre of Trulli, Barrichello or Frensen. But we can never get these sorts of drivers. So that is why we have to take on very young talent and build them ourselves. Later in the year, he did mention that story Jackie told us earlier about trying to get Jensen Button for 2001. But Peter then said, I discovered there was a young driver who was more promising than Button, Kimi Räikkönen. He also told a great story about Mika Salo, who had just left the team. When the team did their first test with Heidfeld and Räikkönen, Salo called him up and asked what the team had done to the cars to make them so quick. And Peter responded, Mika, we've got new drivers. Jackie, how refreshing (laughs) was it for Sauber to go into a season with two young drivers who were so highly rated or would you have preferred to have maybe one of those young guns and then someone like Trulli, Frentzen or Barrichello alongside? Well, actually,
1: uh, no, for me, it was it was OK like this. You know, uh, I think uh, it's something that a team like Sauber uh, could afford to, to risk. Not a team like Ferrari or McLaren in those days, because, you know, they need an established driver for sure. Uh, but I think what, what uh, Peter Sauber decided to do, for sure, he was a risk. But he was a very calculated risk. At least he had Nick Hartfield, who had done already one season. And he was, uh, had a proven record, let's say. Uh, so we could count on him as uh, the regular point scorer. And Kimi was the one who will, the coming up talent, let's say. And uh, honestly, he... Uh, all of us, Peter and myself and, and, and all, all of the engineers, were looking forward to uh, start the season with these two new young drivers. We knew we would make fun with both of them. The car was pretty good. The drivers were motivated. Everybody was motivated. So it was uh, actually a very, a very nice season. One of my finest years of F1, I say.
0: Yeah, I think it worked out OK. Uh, at the launch, Peter Sauber raised another interesting little issue around this time, calling for F1 to change its point system. This was still in the era when points were only paid to the top six finishers, and Sauber had worked out that if F1 had a system like CART in America, which rewarded the top 12 finishers, then Sauber would have been sixth in the Constructors' standings instead of eighth, jumping ahead of Arrows and Jordan. Sauber said that result would have been a fairer reflection, but he claimed the FIA would never change it because they want to compare the points to the past to people like Fangio. Mark, was this just a case of Sauber spotting that a different point system would reflect well on his team? Or did you think that by the turn of the century, we were already reaching that point where reliability was improving, so it was time to consider spreading the points out a bit to give the smaller teams something to race for?
2: I guess so, yes. I, I, I mean, I can't speak for Peter, obviously, but given how vital the team payments were to the survival of the smaller teams and how they um, directly correlated with the, the points that you score, it seemed very restrictive that points only went to the top six. So with the improved reliability, that's potentially just three teams if they've got the, if they've everything sorted. So um, with a few random small crumbs of opportunity, if you happen to be the little team that was around to pick up the pieces and you get a point or two, but it wasn't really in your hands. So broadening the point system out at least would make it more merit-based. It would distinguish between finishing 7th and 10th on how consistent you were. So, yeah, I, I think the, the argument had, had, had merit regardless of uh, what the motivation of, um, of bringing it up was.
0: Yeah, imagine how bad it would be today if only the top six were scoring points with the way the field's strung out. Uh, Jackie, were you aware of this feeling within Salber at the time? And was this an idea you would have supported? Yeah, for sure, <clears throat> it was an idea
1: that uh, uh, I supported already in those days because I think if, if, let's say, if you have zero points at the end of the year and you finish, let's say, 10 times 7th or 8th or ninth or whatever, and you still got zero points. I mean, zero is is zero, you know? So to, to, to sell your team to a sponsor, if you have zero points, is not good. I prefer, let's say... Uh, uh, to be, let's say, on 12 teams, to be ninth in the championship with uh, 20 points than to be ninth in the championship with zero points. You know what I mean? It's more valuable, you know? So I I think it was a good thing to do this because zero is really... uh, Nobody likes to be a zero, you know? (laughs) And it was very hard eh, to get into the points in those days. eh? Very, very hard. The first six, especially in those days, were... Normally, uh, the first six are always uh, Ferrari and McLaren already who were in the neighbourhood. So there was only a few spots left eh, for the other teams.
0: Yeah, and it was shortly after uh, this Sauber launch that we got public confirmation of Raikkonen starting the season on probation with the FIA. Max Mosley explained this in an interview with the Australian Grand Prix organisers ahead of the first race. He said, probably our super licence system is in need of an overhaul, because there are very clear rules about how you get a super license. You have to have won a Formula 3 championship, or to have had certain success in Formula 3000. It's all very clear, and it seemed to me that if you have criteria, you should follow them. He said that there was a rule, an exceptions rule, which was how they got Raikkonen in, but that was actually intended for when older drivers came back after time away from F1, rather than to let a complete rookie in. He explained that Räikkönen would be on probation for the first three or four races. And he added, having said all that, I think he will do a very good job. And I'm confident he'll be quite safe and probably very successful. Jackie, was there much reaction inside Sauber to the news of of Kimi being on probation? And did the FIA make it clear in any way what he had to do to pass probation? We knew
1: it was a, a bit of a risk, of course. But knowing Kimi, and we explained him quite well what the situation was, uh we were pretty sure he would uh not do any stupid things and uh we also made him clear say the first four races you cannot take any risk in racing somebody and taking him off or something like that that is very clear after that it will be okay but let's be extra extra careful on the first uh four races because you know Kimi is razor you now it's, it's difficult to overtake and if you try to block somebody sometimes you know uh, you touch each other eh? and uh, so we told him for the first four races do not take any risk. Just start doing your your thing. You drive your pace, you finish your race and that's it.
0: Mark, do you think this was uh, Max maybe trying to reclaim some ground after he'd lost or he'd been outvoted?
2: Um, no, I think I, I follow his logic about um, the the regulations needing to be changed to reflect the new reality which we, we, we touched on earlier. I think um, it, it was just becoming evident that the really outstanding guys could could instantly um, be on the pace in, in Formula 1 um, because of the um, how much more sanitary the cars had become.
0: Raikkonen dispelled any doubts uh, immediately on his F1 debut. He qualified 13th but was disappointed not to be in the top 10 and finished 7th on the road, which became 6th and therefore a debut point when Sauber successfully appealed against Olivier Panis for overtaking Heidfeld under yellow flags getting Panis a 25-second penalty. Peter Sauber called the performance a miracle and better than we dared hope for. Raikkonen also earned praise from Alain Prost, who at this stage was still a team boss in F1. Prost said, you can see he deserves his place. There are not many drivers around today who are out of the ordinary. Jackie, did, did Kimi exceed your expectations on his debut weekend, or had you seen enough in testing to know that this is what he was capable of?
1: Well, I, I knew what it what it was capable of, and for sure it was still in in a learning process. You know, I mean, uh, testing is one thing. Uh, performing as a race driver in Grand Prix is another story, of course. And uh, basically, what I told Kimi before the race also is: uh, you have to push always, even if you're not in the points. You push maximum until the last flag, until the flagger checkered flag, always. Because in those days, you know, there was no uh, limitation of number of engines or gearboxes or whatever. So it was very important for a team when uh, that driver is pushing 100% until the end of the race. Because if you push only 95%, suddenly the car becomes very reliable. eh? For sure, it's the last 5% that, that makes things break on the car. And for us, it was very important that if the car would break down or if after the race we take it apart and we see something was very close to breakdown, it's better to uh, have this when you're not in the points than you were in the points. So in terms of making the car more reliable, re-engineering some parts of the car, this was extremely important. The driver pushes really hard until the end. So that's what he did. And luckily, because I mean he was not in the points, but he pushed extremely hard until the end of the race. And uh, I think he was something like, can't remember exactly, uh, 12 seconds behind Pani's, who finished sixth. And I punished, got his 20 or 25 second penalty. And that's why he became sixth and got his first point. If he would not have pushed, he would have been a little bit laid back, let's say, the last 15 laps of the race. Maybe he would not have got that point, you know. So um, I, I was quite impressed with that. And uh, after this decision from the stewards, so that Kimi was uh, classified sixth and got his first point in his first race ever in F1. I asked him, so Kimi, what do you think? First race, first point? And then he looked at me with his blue eyes, and he said, uh, "Another five to beat." That's all he said.
0: <laughs> Mark, you've uh, you, you've covered many an F one debut by now. How good was this one from Reichenheim? Oh, it was
2: outstanding. But it was no more than looked possible from his test performances, really, and from his qualifying. And he qualified well, and, and held his position, and was very consistent. Um, the, the noteworthy thing is that he he could so easily have being tripped up at a circuit like albert park which can be pretty punishing of a small mistake but he he was good enough to have all that mapped out in his head where the hazard points were the act of driving a car quickly doesn't take up much of his mental capacity so he had plenty of time to calmly assess those hazards i'm sure like you know not taking too much curb at the turn nine chicane because there's not much track space left in which to recover before you hit the wall that, that type of thing just just all the little details that might trip you up i'm sure he was um, onto them pretty quickly so yeah it, it was an outstanding debut but it, it wasn't even that surprising that he was already looking quite
0: exceptional Kimi retired from the next three races, but it's the third of these I want to briefly stop off at, uh, partly because it was a strange reason to retire from the San Marino Grand Prix, and partly because it happened right in front of me as I was sat on the banks at Tosa. Uh, Räikkönen accelerated out of the tight left-hander, and he began blasting past the Tifosi and me with my Jacques Villeneuve Canadian flag, and then the car snapped to the left and straight into the wall. It was a strange-looking crash, and with good reason because the steering wheel came off in Kimmy's hands. Raikkonen said afterwards it was incredible, and he uh, he said he even tried to reattach the wheel before the car lost control, which seems quite ambitious. Jackie, Kimi was certain that he put the wheel on correctly before the race. Did you ever get to the bottom of what happened, at Imola?
1: Yes, for sure. I mean, it was uh, 100% a mistake uh, from us, from the team. So we had redesigned some parts, you know, because... Uh, well, there was a problem with uh, the fixation. It was a bit too sticky and uh, some things uh, had been redesigned. And uh, I think it was a problem with tolerances of, of, of new machine parts that it could come off by pulling on it, you know? And uh, of course it was a mistake. It's nothing to do with Kimi. So uh, basically we were lucky that it only was an accident like that without any uh, physical damage, let's say to the driver and uh, you could clearly see in the data like you said that he he's trying to put putting the steering wheel back on because on the steering wheel already in those days we had a lot of uh, switches and rotaries eh, for uh, setting up a lot of stuff on the car eh? and uh, all these switches are connected with a multi-pin connector that's go that goes through the uh, steering column so each time the steering wheel came off all those data on the telemetry they dropped to zero now, when he put it back on, they, they came up again and they dropped again. So you saw he was trying to push the steering wheel back on in the data. And at the, what was very impressive that while he was doing this, his uh, throttle sensor showed he was flooring the throttle in four gear into the reflimiter all the time. So he was doing like 240 km per hour <laughs> while trying to push the steering wheel up. I was quite impressed, I must say. But yeah, it was a team mistake. So.
0: Certainly fearless. Uh, this weekend was the first time that out outqualified Heidfeld, and he said that four races into his F1 career, he was starting to feel a lot more comfortable. He said, I have more confidence. At the beginning, I was unsure what it was going to be like in Formula One. Now I know. There are no surprises. You learn something every time you go out in the car, and you go quicker every time. His Countryman Mika Hakkinen was impressed as well, saying Kimmy has already shown enough potential to say that he's going to be a Grand Prix winner. So Mark, you you mentioned earlier that anecdote about watching Kimi at Imola. From what we'd seen over the body of the first four races, was it already clear that regardless of the probation, Raikkonen belonged in F1 by this point?
2: oh yeah then that, that was um that was clear after uh, Melbourne really it, it was it was more just how far can this guy go because he, he was clearly exceptional it was um more will he get the opportunity of getting in a, a you know a top, top car and and when um because yes he was he was not just worth of his place in f1 he was um He's, he's clearly one of the star performers of F1 already.
0: We'll move on a couple of races and get to the Austrian Grand Prix because Raikkonen got a real statement result here, finishing fourth and in the process taking Sauber past 100 points in F1. Raikkonen said it felt like a long wait from Australia to score points again. And at the time, this put him level in the championship with Hakkinen, which was quite a big talking point in Finland. BAR lodged a protest against Raikkonen for overtaking Luciano Berti's Prost under yellow flags perhaps looking for some revenge for that Australia protest, but the FIA threw it out. Jackie, this was Kimi's best result in F1 up to this point. How impressed were you with this drive to fourth in Austria? And how much had Kimi improved from the start of the season to this point, just a few more races in?
1: Well, Actually, uh, I was impressed, but I expected it a little bit, you know. And uh, I've seen uh, through the season from Melbourne onwards, he was progressing all the time like he said himself more and more confident and especially so he had to learn of course to uh, extract the maximum of the car on new tires and and, and low fuel in qualified is one thing but especially he became more and more stronger during the race because say in those days a classical race uh, was three times 20 laps eh, each time with new tires so and on these long runs of 20-25 laps he was uh, learning a lot his average pace was always improving a lot. So he, he learned to manage the tyres, to get the maximum out of the tyres over 20 laps and not just 2-3 uh, laps very fast and then dropping down. And that that impressed me quite a lot. And that, of course, uh, improved his race pace quite a lot. And it's all about race pace eh? at the end. So uh, finishing fourth in Austria was quite impressive, but I expected it to happen sooner or later.
0: Yeah, Heidfeld has said uh, recently, actually, that he was amazed at how good Kimi was in race trim from the very beginning. There was another fourth place a couple of races later in Canada, but the real story from the Canadian Grand Prix weekend was that this was when McLaren made first contact with Raikkonen. Hakkonen helped to make this meeting happen, and by this stage, he was already thinking of retiring, and he told Ron Dennis that. Hakkonen then flew back to the UK with Raikkonen for a Silverstone test. And they talked about the McLaren opportunity some more. There are also rumors coming out of Italy that Ferrari was interested in Raikkonen. And Peter Sauber addressed that speculation in August. He said, Peter said, if Ferrari want Kimi Raikkonen, they can have him if they give us free engines. We are going to keep both Kimi and Nick next year. And we have every intention of keeping them as long as possible to build on the success of this year. It was a risk bringing them here to many people, but not to me. We have Kimi under contract for three years. I don't want to make money on him. I want him to race for me. But, Jackie, by this point in the season, with the rumours of McLaren and Ferrari being interested, were you becoming worried at all that you might only get to spend one year working with Kimi? Yes and
1: no. (laughs) Let's say, um, of course, I think it became obvious to uh, a lot of people in the paddock that Kimi was uh, an exceptional talent. And uh, I knew already very early also from the Robertsons that he could eventually go to McLaren because Micah was thinking about retiring. And uh, for sure, I mean, he was a bit of a shame. On the other hand, the Robertsons told me he wants uh, you to come uh, with him to McLaren as race engineer. So <laughs> eventually I could have gone on working with Kimi at McLaren. Uh, at the end, I didn't because I gave my word to Peter to, uh, Stay another year with him, and uh, but at the end I stayed another four years with him. And uh, for the Swiss people, a word is more worth than a contract. So uh the I didn't do it. But I think on the other end I was also happy because I mean, in those days McLaren Mercedes car was a really uh, a top team, and uh, I think Kimi deserved to to drive for a top team for sure. Uh, okay, our team setup was also not bad, but it was more like a midfield team. Was maybe one of the best because we finished uh, in 2014 in the constructors championship. Bearing in mind there were people like uh, constructors like Ferrari, uh, Jaguar, Renault, Toyota, all those uh, works teams. We all beaten, not Ferrari, but uh, the others we beaten, and uh, so it was. It was very good. But I understand, Kimi, you know, he knew the McLaren Mercedes was the faster car than the Sauber Ferrari or the Sauber Petronas Ferrari. Of course, a driver who is eager to win, especially with uh, the ambition of uh, Kimi Räikkönen, he prefers to drive the McLaren, so don't stop him. We could eventually, or Peter could, because we had a three-year contract with him. But I think he was more intelligent to uh, use this uh, extra two-year contract uh, for uh, the financial... uh, situation of a
2: deep health division
0: And Mark, was the buzz and interest around Raikkonen by the summer of 2001 always going to be too much for Sauber to resist?
2: Um I think you you, you can't really force a driver even if you've got him on contract, you can't really force him to stay there if if it was going to be against his will and if if somebody's waving a top team contract in front of uh, front of a, a driver of course he's he's going to want to take it he's he's, he's got his own ambition. To think of, so yeah, I think given that um, McLaren were prepared to pay what they were prepared to pay, and then that was um, valuable investment in the in the team, um, when it was really needed, um, yeah, it was it was pretty pretty much a done deal that that's that's what was going
0: to happen. Yeah, and Sauber Sauber built their wind tunnel out of it. I think they, they still call it the Kimi the Kimi wind tunnel. But there there was another interesting story around Sauber at this time because Peter Sauber revealed that Red Bull had finally told him he made the right decision in taking Raikkonen over its own driver, Binaldi. That might seem obvious, but earlier in the year, this had caused a big problem between Red Bull and Sauber. Red Bull was a majority shareholder in Sauber at the time, so this was a big rift. And Peter Sauber said the disagreement over driver choice exploded on the eve of the season. At that point in Australia, he said, Red Bull is a majority shareholder, but I have the majority of the votes. I understand they wanted to have their say, but only one person can run the team. Coming back to the summer of 2001, he said, They told me that as far as the driver lineup goes, I made the correct choice. The differences of opinion between us weren't just about whether I take Kimi or Binaldi. At that point, Red Bull's future with Sauber was unclear, but over the following off-season, Red Bull sold its stake, which was the beginning, really, of its gradual path towards buying Jaguar and having its own team by 2005. Mark, just looking at Binaldi, he really was the first Helmut Marco, proper Red Bull Junior and they did get him into F1 in 2001 with Arrows. Do you think Binaldi got a fair crack at F1? Um, yeah, I think he, he think, think he did.
2: He was um, probably a little bit unfortunate in his timing and that he arrived in F1 at the same time as Kimi, Alonso, Montoya um so i don't think he was of the caliber of those guys but he was he was quick he deserved a, a chance in f1 and he and he got one and um, i think yeah i think it was it was fair enough he didn't do anything in there where he transcended the car that made him irresistible to you know a, a, a top team in the way that that, that kimmy or fernando did that yeah so yeah i think that's that's just the way of it you know the, the, there's you often hear from um, people are it, it's a shame this guy was never given a chance in a top car but th- there's usually reasons why why that happens and there's usually reasons why the the guys that are recruited to the top teams are those guys and not not other guys you know they're, they're very very few outstanding drivers of that of that level where when you engineers look and people like jackie look into the the actual texture of, of, of their lap-by-lap lap and their, their long-run pace and their feedback and uh, uh, the, the, the way they come back from um, setbacks, all those things, it marks the outstanding ones out and there, there aren't many of them. And so the, 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 they usually end up in the right places.
0: Now, it was at the Belgian Grand Prix at the start of September that Sauber confirmed McLaren had made an approach for Raikkonen Uh, Peter said, two top teams want him. I prefer not to let him go, but it depends on what and how much I am offered. If he will go, I will have made a good deal. Ferrari was rumoured to be the other team chasing Raikkonen, but Luca di Montezemolo said, I would never put a young driver in such an important car. It's not the right moment for us because we have Michael Schumacher. The McLaren deal was announced two weeks later at the Italian Grand Prix, with Hakkinen taking a sabbatical and Raikkonen taking his place for 2002. And this was pretty much bang on a year from that first test with Sauber in 2000. Sauber said Raikkonen and his management came to him after the German Grand Prix. And he said, for Kimi, it was an absolute must go in this direction. My first reaction was absolutely no way. But then after some discussions with him, I realized it was not possible to keep him because his focus was so strong. Jackie, did you talk to Kimmy much about his desire to go to mclaren
1: yeah we uh we uh had a chat about that a few times yeah for sure because he was always uh hundred percent open and honest with me and uh I understood him I, he told me his motivation and uh, he said, yeah, I mean even if you build a a good car at Salavo for two thousand and two, you will never reach the same level than uh, than the McLaren Mercedes car, which is a bit true because also in those days, you know, we had uh, the Ferrari engine, but uh, the customer Ferrari engine was actually the, uh, the engine from the year before. So we were always lacking like uh, 30, 40 horsepower to the, to the red cars, while McLaren was the only team, uh, I think, with Mercedes engines in those days. So it was like the works team. Basically, It was new like Mercedes itself, you know. And, uh, so understanding, he said, uh, I want to drive the most competitive car I can get in, in, in my hands. Uh, so I understand 100%. So I, I, I will speak to, to, yeah, because he said, yeah, Peter doesn't want to let me go. And na-na-na-na. I'll speak to him. So I understand you. And, uh, yeah. So I knew it would be happening. And I went with Peter to, uh, we, we, we took our team plane, uh, one day to, uh, Stuttgart. Because Mercedes has uh, offices on the airport of Stuttgart, and uh, in one of those offices, we met uh, the current boss uh, of Mercedes and a few other people, and that's where it was discussed that at the end uh, he would leave us. But I think Peter made a very good deal out of it. I don't think so, I know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's quickly talk about Sauber's other driver, Heidfeld, because he was already under contract to McLaren at the time it signed Raikkonen. Ron Dennis was asked about this and he said, we will use the best drivers available to us. It may be a difficult decision, but we'll take them. Nick has uh, more than a chance of driving for us in the future. We have several drivers contracted to this team. It's a very nice problem to have. A couple of years later, Heidfeld was asked about McLaren's decision. And he said he uh, although he knew it was coming, I still don't understand why they went for him over me. He also said, I tried to do my talking on the track, but looking back on my career, I think I should have been a bit more offensive, maybe made more noise. But it's simply not me. Maybe it would have helped, but it's not my character. And I should say that I think by offensive there, he means on the offensive rather than going around offending people. Uh, Mark was... Was Heidfeld unfortunate to miss out here, given his links to McLaren? And do you think he had a point that over the course of his career he maybe wasn't pushy enough off track to to advance his career in the way that he could have?
2: You know, but being a top driver and being a top competitor is it's it's a it's a complicated mix, and the personality comes into it. And um, yeah, Kimmy, for all the fact for all that he doesn't say very many words, um, he's still a very uh, strong pushy character and in, in terms of, um, pursuing, pursuing the goal. Um, and so that's, that's all part of the makeup. Um, but also, I mean, Heidfeld was a, a very high level d- driver, but I don't think, um, he was just of that special quality that, that Kimi was. And I think if you're in Ron's position at the time where you, his existing drivers, hacken and Coulthard were sort of probably coming to the, the end of the well, hacken was coming to the end. He'd already informed Ron that he was stopping. Um, so you would be looking at um, Kimmy as your potential uh, Mika replacement, and I, 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 don't think Nick was ever perceived in quite that light, and I don't think um, he, he would he would have been really uh, ready to to lead a top team in the way that uh, Kimmy was. It was just wore off Duck's back to Kimmy. Um, Heidfeld would have been a, a great replacement if Ronald wanted to replace DC at that time.
0: Jackie, did you feel any sympathy for Nick when it was Kimi that got signed for 2002?
2: Yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, he was extremely uh, frustrated by this uh, decision because he thought he was the next who would go to to McLaren as a race driver. But on the other hand, you must know, McLaren uh, could uh, evaluate Nick extremely well because his uh, Formula 1 experience in terms of mileage was extremely high because, you know, in... in, uh, 98 Formula One went to narrow track and groove tires, which means that the teams who could afford it, like McLaren, already made a car with narrow track in '97 with groove tires. And their test driver was mainly Nick Heidfeld. So he did, uh, in those days, testing was unrestricted, engines were unrestricted. He maybe did 20,000 or 30,000 kilometers already with this narrow track car with the groove tires in '97. He was test trial for them in '98, in '99. So they knew him extremely well, and I think they've also seen that Kimi was a bit outstanding you know, to him. And actually, knowing all the experience of Nick was not only one year of racing with with the, with the Prost the Grand Prix car, but all these years before. And then seeing what is Kimi doing uh, after four races, beating already in qualifying in the race. So I mean, I think.
0: The choice of Ron was quite obvious, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure uh, Ron and Kimmy particularly looked back from that moment in the years that followed. Now, Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to tell us what it was like working with Räikkönen and bringing him into Formula One. It's it's an incredible story, one that we very rarely re- see repeated. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate it that you took the time to come and share your stories
1: also I have one one thing i want to tell you also about kimi tosia especially he was in um, 2001 so his first season we went to the monaco uh, grand prix and obviously he, he never raced in monaco because uh, he had never done uh, gp2 or formula 3 or whatever formula Renault 3.5 so the track was completely new to him and of course he could learn the track by walking a bit and i, I took him on my, my on the back of my scooter but you know between the cars and uh, it's very difficult to to see how the track goes and uh in 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 uh, in the race um after a number of laps not a lot three four five six i can't remember exactly he called me on the radio he said i have no power anymore Case, can you come back to the, to the garage yeah, yeah, so he came back to the garage the, the, the engine was misfiring he came out of the car because the race was over basically we looked in the data and we saw it basically a faulty wheel speed sensor because in, from 2001 uh, traction control was allowed again in F1 before not but yes and so because of faulty wheel speed sensor the software was thinking that the wheel was spinning all the time and the uh, so it cut down the engine power. So I said to Kinis, listen, we found the problem. So if you want, I can disconnect or disable the traction control. There is still like nearly 50 laps to go. So you jump in the car, experience for next year, for the future of your career. See, but it's Monaco with 900 on power, no traction control. Said, Be careful. So he said, okay, I'll do. So when he went out again, I think there's still 45 laps to, to, to go. So he finished the race. Of course, he was last. But Without traction control in Monaco, he did the seventh fastest race lap (laughs) time. That's quite impressive, I must say.
0: Yeah, did you you disable it for any more races that year? No. No, but I
1: mean, he he took my proposition to say, okay, you can have uh, another 45 or 50 laps to go. Just for your own proper experience, you know, you, what well, you learn this year, maybe you can use next year, you need a better car to win the race, you never know. And uh, so he did it and he did it really uh, very, very well. I mean, he knew he would have zero points, of course. Yeah, it happens sometimes in monocular, there were only three cars finishing, like in 96, but that's exceptional. But, uh, you know, it was no lack of motivation. You know, some other the would have said, why? Uh, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know? And for him, it was like an opportunity to learn more. So I jumped in the car, and he drove flat out, you know, at uh, two, three milliliters from the barriers all the time, no mistakes, seventh fastest lap time, no traction control.
2: There was um, there was also a, a story. I don't know if you can um, uh, tell us here about you, the when he turned up for the test at magnico and he, he wasn't in the best state. Can you can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, I actually, uh, I don't know too much about it, but it's, it happens sometimes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, for sure.
0: Sometimes he, he likes to have a drink, you know. And was he still quick the next morning?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it happened also. Uh, the last race uh, I did with Kimi uh, in F1 uh, 2001 was Suzuka, you know. And, of course, like all the other tracks, Suzuka was also new to him, and uh, most of the other tracks. And uh, the you have this uh, very fast uh, corner there, the r one thirty, thirsty bent, which is flat in an four car. So I told him uh, that uh, easy, flat and so on, but be careful anyway, because speed is very high, It's a bit of bumps, you know. And uh, I said, okay, okay, okay. So in the first free practice on Friday morning, uh, he was lifting quite a lot, you know, in, in that corner. And uh, of course, because he was flat, but it was still a high G corner. It was flat, but not easy flat. And uh, so I told him, say, I mean, uh, comparing to your teammate uh, Nick uh, in the garage here, I mean, he's easy flat to the corner, and you're still lifting quite a lot at all in the radio. And then he made a sign to me to come closer to him. So he wanted to speak to me, not in the radio. And I listened to yourself and said, What's What do you want to tell me? He will be flat uh, in free practice too, but my head is still hurting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I must say, this
0: happened a lot. Yeah, massive thank you to Jackie for offering so much first-hand insight there about Raikkonen's first season in F one. But Mark, let's tie up a few loose ends before we go. Firstly, on Heidfeld, it's worth adding that in 2020, when he was interviewed for F one's Beyond the Grid podcast, he did say McLaren did a good choice by going for Raikkonen, as proven by Kimi's subsequent career. Nick said he was disappointed, but it wasn't the biggest drama in the world. So it's not like it's something he still dwells on today. But let's go back to Ferrari, because when Raikkonen's McLaren deal was announced, Ron Dennis said that another offer uh, was on the table, which was to stay at Sauber for one more year, then to move on to a team where he would be a number two driver. The thought of that was very unattractive to him because he did not want to be a number two. At McLaren, we have a policy of not having a number one and a number two driver, and Kimi liked that. And it's widely acknowledged that the deal Ron was talking about there was from Ferrari. Mark, do you think Raikkonen made the right choice to take McLaren's offer over what was on the table from Maranello at that time?
2: Absolutely, yes. You you you, you can't go in there as um, at that stage of your career um, as as. Uh, as a, a support driver not not if you have aspirations to fight for for championships and um, you know it's it, it's a, a different situation to that that somebody like Eddie Irvin or Rubens Barrichello took which you know they're already um had a you know a, a, a reasonable career up to that point and this this was really sort of um the 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 cashing in of of that and um but not for for Kimi and the impact the level of impact that he made it was essential that he kept that momentum the momentum of the perceptions everything and you have to keep that if you if you've got it you've got to keep that uh, momentum going and um turning up doing another season in a in a sauber and then turning up at ferrari as a support to michael wouldn't wouldn't really have uh, maintained that momentum so yeah yeah i think he did absolutely the right thing
0: yeah, he certainly wouldn't have got to fight Michael for the 2003 World Championship as he did at McLaren. Now, as well as Heidfeld, there was another driver contracted to McLaren already, who not only thought he was in with a shot, but was briefly told the drive was his for 2002. And we're talking about McLaren's main test driver at the time, Alex Wurtz. Wirtz told the McLaren website in 2016 that he was called into the pits while testing at Monza to take a phone call from Martin Whitmarsh, who told him, congratulations, I thought I'd interrupt the test because you'll race for us next year. Vert said he didn't know at the time that Dennis was chasing Räikkönen, and when he didn't get any follow-ups after that phone call from Whitmarsh, uh, Alex says he realised there was something brewing. He flew to the UK to see Ron, who told him, actually, we are signing Kimi. Vert said, I was grown up enough to realise that they did not do it to hurt me. They did it because they thought it was the better option for the team, which, to be fair, it probably was. Even if Alex has taken it like a grown-up, as he said there, Mark, was this still handled slightly clumsily by McLaren? It was, yes, and it's
2: a little bit of a function of um, the, 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 the the management structure there and the, the, the two personalities involved in that was g- getting a little bit tetchy and there were different sort of um, agendas going on there. So it's quite a... Um, it, I wouldn't say trouble, but it was uh, certainly turbulent um, at, at McLaren at the management level at, at that time. So I think this was just a function of that, really, and it just sort of seeped out in an un- unfortunate way. Um, but yeah, as, as Alex said, um, it was the ultimately made the right decision.
0: I should say that we'll talk about Hakkinen's decision to leave F1, which sparked this Räikkönen move. Uh, and The whole, was it a sabbatical or was it retirement? We'll, we'll do an episode on that in the future. So we can really do it justice rather than a a fleeting mention here. So the final point we'll cover in this episode is to pick up on a line from Michael Schumacher. In the summer of 2001, he said Raikkonen was the best of that year's rookies, which given the names Mark uh, listed earlier of the rookie crop for 2001 was quite a big statement when you consider you had one Pablo Montour at Williams and Fernando Alonso making waves at Minardi. Mark, you've uh, you've covered all of those drivers throughout their career, their their highs and lows, and obviously we're getting Fernando back this year in twenty twenty one. But back then, what do you, what do you make of Schumacher's declaration about the rookie crop at the time and the fact that in his eyes, Kimi was the standout talent? Um, I,
2: he might have been. I wasn't convinced. I, I thought it might have been Alonso as well. But the 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 problem with Trying to compare them in that season was that the Minardi was as far off a Sauber as a Sauber was off a, a Ferrari, so you'd, it would probably a Saab would be a, mm, thick end of two seconds slower than a Ferrari, and a Minardi was thick end of four seconds slower. So really, it was a, a sort of a bit like George Williams's, uh, <laughs> sorry, a bit like um, George Russell's season at Williams uh, in 2019, where the car is just not just at the back, it's hanging off the back. It, it, it's not even, you know, can't even fight the the cars ahead of it, which Alonso occasionally did. He, he could occasionally put it um, ahead of a an Arrows or a Prost or something like that, and you could do something extraordinary with it. So I wasn't, although Kimi was absolutely outstanding, as we've just discussed, I thought um, Alonso was um, doing some extraordinary things as well so I wasn't um, I wasn't as adamant I, I couldn't have got behind Michael's declaration that it was definitely Kimi. Um and Montoya did some obviously some great things as well but he was he was coming in from Champ Car would probably more experienced than, than those two guys um, and his peaks were extraordinary but he, he also had quite quite some troughs as well so um, for me, the, the, the rookie of the year was between Kimi and Fernando.
0: Yeah, and we've uh, we've discussed Montoya's 2001 season as well in the past. And based on what we went over there, I wouldn't be surprised if Michael's line was partly a dig at Montoya, who was already a thorn in his side. But we'll leave it there for Kimi Raikkonen's F1 arrival. It was quite the journey from that first Mugello test to being announced as a McLaren driver exactly a year later. Thanks again to Jackie for joining us, and of course to Mark, who will be on one of our season finale episodes where we'll answer your questions about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. Make sure you get your questions in using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or if you think we deserve it, you can leave us a five-star podcast review and submit a question there as well. Next time, we're switching from the beginning of one legendary name in F1 to the end of another. We're taking a trip back to 1994 and revisiting the demise of Lotus and the end of a once great team's slow and painful fall into F1 obscurity.